the all-sufficient one. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to go back to the verse of Scripture I've been stuck with or stuck on for a number of weeks. And that's in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now notice this talks about being strong in the Lord. There's not one word there talking about you being strong in yourself. And that's one of the tools that the enemy uses, one of the tricks of the devil, it seems, to, to, to accuse you or tell you that you're not strong, you can't be strong, and so forth. Well, folks, that can, may well be true, but you can still be strong in the Lord. Amen. Being strong in the Lord is being strong in his strength, Amen. not in your own. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore." having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take in the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now notice what all this armor is for. Verse 18, praying. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Well, how do we wrestle with them? Praying. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, there's some things that uh, we've talked about in somewhat of greater detail um, concerning this passage of Scripture that we, I really don't want to take the time to go back over, so I'm just going to make mention of a couple of things. One is, notice that it talks about the wiles of the devil. It talks about the armor of God being made available to us, but God wants us to understand how the devil works. Now, we don't have a whole lot of information in the Bible about the devil, and I believe that's for a reason. I believe that's supernatural and I think we should recognize it as such. God doesn't want you focused on the devil any more than is necessary. Because the devil is really not your problem. The Bible says that the devil is a defeated foe. Hallelujah. One translation says that he's been paralyzed by the work of Jesus. Well, we know that he's active. We know that he still operates. But if he's paralyzed, if his power has been neutralized by the word of God and by the, excuse me, by the sacrifice of Jesus, then through the word of God, we have been given a means, spiritual weapons specifically, to overcome any and every one of his attacks. Now, what is this weapon, or what are these weapons that are going to enable us, that are given to us to enable us 
to overcome the work of the devil? Well, the answer is very simple, and that's knowledge. When he says, put on the whole armor of God, every piece of that armor that he identifies, every piece of the armor that uh, we can imagine, perhaps, that he's got a lot of experience, he, meaning Paul, has a lot of experience with the armor that the Roman soldiers wore. He spent a lot of time with Roman soldiers. He was chained to one for two years. That was part of his prison experience. And he had plenty of opportunity to look at the armor and to compare it to what the Bible says belongs to us to what Jesus has done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus. So when he talks about the armor of God, when he talks about our loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and the helmet of salvation which is, uh, and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. When he talks about those things, he's recognizing that they represent the knowledge of the protection that we have because of what God has done for us through Jesus. So the answer, the antidote for the wiles of the devil, the, de the deception of the devil is knowledge. If we know who we are, if we know who God is, if we know what Jesus has done for us, and if we know what we're supposed to do with what he's provided for us, then we can gain the victory every time. Now here where it says uh, that we should be able to stand or have been able to been enabled to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles means traveling over. Specifically, it means the road that the devil travels. Well, what road does the devil travel? The only power the devil is ever going to have against the church is deception. That's it. He has no ability to overcome the authority that the church has given in the name of Jesus. He never will have any ability to overcome what the, word, what the church has been given in the name of Jesus. Well, then how is he ever going to win? The only means of victory he can ever gain over you, over me, over any of the church of God is through deception. But folks, if we know that that's the road that he travels, then it stands to reason that we could set up our defenses in that area and be ready for him whenever he comes. Now notice again in verse 12 where it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. What's the difference in those things? This is obviously Paul giving us some kind of hierarchy as far as the devil's kingdom and the devil's agents operate by. Well what's the difference in principalities and powers? What's the difference in principalities and the rulers of the darkness of this world? What's the difference in principalities and spiritual wickedness in high and he higher heavenly places? I have no idea. And the Bible goes into no detail whatsoever to give us information about that. Again, God doesn't want us focused on the devil. He wants us focused on what belongs to us through the word of God and through the work of Jesus rather than the work of the devil. But we would have to assume if there is some kind of hierarchy that Paul gives us in this verse, 
well, then that hierarchy has to be ascending in power of some type or else there would be no distinction between the four. See, you could have just as easily said the devil and his cohorts, but he gives us a hierarchy. Well, that hierarchy, if it doesn't stand for uh, an ascension or an increase in power, what did he give it to us for? Now, I want you to turn with me over to, to uh, Matthew chapter 14. We want to look again at another, uh, another time at some scriptures that, just, that tell us of an experience of how the devil operates so that we can prepare our defenses. Verse 22, Matthew 14, verse 22. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. The word contrary just means the wind was against them. It was opposing them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Now, the word troubled means they were afraid. They were afraid when they saw Jesus. They said, It's a ghost. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Now, I want you to realize something, folks. Their fear was unfounded, but they were still afraid. See, fear doesn't have to have a solid foundation, even a truthful foundation, to operate against you or to be effective in its operation against you. They were afraid because of something they supposed. They looked and they said, it's a spirit or it's a ghost. And so they were afraid. Well, is there any reason if it had been a ghost that they should have been afraid? See, the fear that's not identified, what they were afraid of is that something was going to happen to them. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. We just know that's how it works. And what did Jesus do to calm their fears or to dispel their fears? He identified himself. Folks, every time in life that you face fear, if you can identify yourself from the word of God, you can remain free from fear in every situation. So Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. Well, if it's Jesus, they know they don't have any reason to fear him. And so they hear his voice. They accept that it is him. And their fear is dispelled. Notice they didn't have to rebuke fear. They didn't have to pray away the fear. They didn't have to command the fear to go. Fear left when knowledge of the truth came to them. So he says, it's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. I love this verse of scripture because it tells us that Peter challenged Jesus to challenge him. If it's you, 
There's the challenge. If it's you, bid me come on the water to you. Now, Jesus did not have to say, now, Peter, you know that I'm the son of God, and that's the only reason why I'm walking on water, and there's no way that you could because you're not the son of God. Jesus didn't tell him that this was a special miracle. He didn't tell him anything. Jesus just simply said, okay, come. Now, find anything other than Jesus going to the cross that the Bible tells us that Jesus would partake of and we couldn't. You remember John and James' mother came to Jesus and wanted seats in heaven for her sons, one on the right hand and one on the left. Jesus asked and said, can they, partake of, uh, can they drink of the cup and partake of the sufferings that I'm going to suffer? She said, yes, not having a clue what she's talking about. But moms oftentimes continue no matter what. And that was the only reason that Jesus gave that they, couldn't, that they couldn't have a place on his right hand and on his left. But every other thing that we see Jesus doing in the word, experiencing and carrying out through the word of God, everything is, has been made available for you and me to not only participate in, but to do the same works that he did. And so Jesus says, come. He doesn't tell him there's no reason for him to want to walk on the water. He doesn't say, Peter, I walked on the water because it was the only way I could get from where I was to, to the ship. And you don't have a need to do that, so forget it. He said, come. And there was enough power in that one word, come, for Peter to walk on the water. So Jesus said, come. And Peter was come down, when, Jesus, when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, folks, please notice, Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. We make a big deal about, and, and I think the story is here for us to make a big deal about what happened and how he began to sink. But he walked on the water to go to Jesus. So before we criticize Peter, we need to make sure that we're able to walk on the water too. Since we've got all the answers. But there are some important truths that this story brings out. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. Now he was afraid when they first saw Jesus before we, they knew who he was. Jesus said, it's me, so their fear was dispelled. Peter says, if it's you, have me come to walk on the water with you. Jesus says, come. Peter steps out of the boat, walks on the water. He's experiencing, he's in the middle of a miracle. It's working just like he wanted it to work. It's working just like God wanted it to work for him. Everything is right. Everything is operating not just supernaturally, but miraculously. But then something happens. Something changes the situation. What changed? Well, it says when he saw the wind boisterous. 
Now, folks, we've already read earlier in the story that the wind was contrary. The wind was in opposition to them. That's why they're struggling. That's why they haven't made it across the sea. The wind was blowing, and the wind was blowing hard, and the wind was blowing against the ship, and they were struggling to make forward progress with the, uh, in the ship because of the strength of the wind. But then it says, when Peter saw the wind boisterous. Now, the word boisterous means uh, strong or strength. It's talking about a force. There are translations, many translations, that identify when he saw how strong the wind was. And then other translations, not too many, but a few other translations, translate this as, but when the wind started blowing harder. Now that's very possible, very possibly a real good translation because it could very well mean that something happened that was out of the ordinary or something different than how it started. But whatever it was, however it came about, something happened to distract Peter from what was going on to what might happen. See, folks, if it's just the wind blowing, it wouldn't be a big deal because the wind was blowing the whole time. There's no way he could have stepped out of the ship without the wind still being strong. There's no way he could have stepped out of the ship without seeing the strength of the waves and the waves going back and forth. But something happened in either the physical realm or in Peter's mind to change everything about this story. Something distracted Peter from what he was experienced just a few moments before to draw his attention to the strength of the wind. Now, folks, Jesus is still there. Remember Peter, after hearing that it's Jesus, don't be afraid. Peter said, if it's you, have me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So what's he focused on when he gets out of the ship? Walking on the water. What's he focused on when he sees the wind boisterous? The strength of the wind. See, folks, fear has no power unless it's threatening to do something to you. Fear has no power unless there's some kind of thought process associated with it that brings a threat to your life or your well-being or your circumstance. If there's no threat, there's no fear. Even unfounded fears, and most of the fears we face during our lives are unfounded. Unfounded fears have no power over us unless we accept that something is going to happen because of X, Y, Z. What happened to Peter? Well, when he saw the wind boisterous, there was something about the wind that changed everything for him. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Now, folks, please notice that there's only one thing that Jesus said to Peter that enabled him to walk on the water. He said one word, and that one word is come. So we know, therefore, that the power that produces this miraculous occasion, this, this miraculous event, is based in the word come. So the only thing that can stop this miracle from taking place is if Peter quits coming.
His fear paralyzed him. That's how Jesus knew he was afraid. He's walking on the water to come to Jesus, but he stops. We know from the story, the description in the story, that the reason that he stopped or the thing that made him stop was the fear that was uh, uh, created by his attitude toward the wind. But folks, it's very possible that the wind has been blowing the same speed, the same uh, difficulty, just as hard the whole time. It's possible, two things, really two possibilities. One is the wind blows harder and he takes notice of it. Or the other is the wind's blowing at the same strength that it was all the time. The wind has been consistent, but he just paid more attention to it when he was out of the boat than he did when he was in the boat. Either way, it caused fear. And the fear was he's going to drown. The fear was in the middle of the greatest miracle Peter has ever experienced, you're going to drown. Now, folks, fear is, the Bible talks about fear being a spirit. Paul told Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. So fear is never physical. Fear can only be of the unseen realm. So it has no way to translate into the physical realm unless we, spirit beings, allow the spirit of fear, the unseen force of fear, to have an effect on us in this physical realm. By that I mean that you could experience a miracle with fear all over you. Peter could continue in this miracle of walking on the water with fear all over him as long as he doesn't let it stop him from doing what Jesus said. We've heard the saying, Brother Hagin used to say it so often, faith will work in your heart even when there's doubt in your mind. Well, faith will work in your heart even when there's fear in your mind too. So the only thing that could have stopped this miracle is Peter stopping dead in his tracks. As long as he comes, no matter what he feels, no matter what he thinks, the power in the one word that Jesus spoke, the word come, will get him to the finish line. But Peter was paralyzed by his fear. Whatever he saw, whatever he felt about the wind, whatever the circumstance was that drew his attention away from what Jesus told him to do, That robbed him of the miracle. When Peter saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Somebody please tell me how do you begin to sink? There's two places, on top of the water and in the water. Or under the water. How does he begin to sink? What does that tell us? Folks, here's an interesting thing that you need to be aware of. Peter's faith left him by degrees. The more he's afraid, the longer he allows it to stop what Jesus told him to do, the more he's affected by his fear. The more his fear overcomes his faith. So Jesus watches Peter. He's coming He doesn't have to keep coaching him. He doesn't have to say, okay, now take your next step. 
Now take your next step. Now take your next step. He just says, come. And as long as Peter is coming to Jesus, he's okay. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. And said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now I want you to notice something, folks. Doubt took hold of Peter because of fear. There are very few things that we doubt in life that are not attached to the spirit of fear. There are very few times that fear and faith are not opposite forces. Now you remember what Jesus said in those great scriptures that describe faith. In Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Here's faith leaving Peter by degrees, ending up, starting off in faith, starting off with a miracle, ending up in doubt and a rescue from Jesus. O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? What makes Peter's faith little? Was it little when he stepped out of the boat and walked on the water? I don't think so. What turned it into little faith? The attention he gave to the wind blowing and the waves crashing around him that caused him to stop acting on what the word says. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We see the association between fear and doubt. Mark chapter 5 beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship to the other side, much people gathered unto him and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Then it tells us about the story of the woman with the issue of blood. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and it's been all she had, and was nothing better but rather grew worse, when she heard of Jesus came in the press behind and touched his garment, for she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now here's a great story about how faith works. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, Romans 10, 17 says. So whatever she heard of Jesus gave her faith to touch his garment. 
She must not have heard about Jesus casting out spirits and healing people with his word because that's not what she had faith for. She had faith for the physical touch of Jesus or his clothes being sufficient to overcome what the doctors could not do after 12 years of working on it and taking all of her money to dry. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. It takes absolutely no effort on the part of the, the mind of man or the soul of man to receive faith because faith is a spiritual force. Hearing the word will produce enough faith in you that when that word is acted on will bring victory to your life. No matter how long you've had something, no matter how severe it is, there is enough faith in the Word of God to overcome anything and everything the devil can or will do. So Jesus commends her faith. It works just like she said that it would work. If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. She touched his clothes. She felt power go into her. Jesus felt power go out of him. And she was healed. Now, what about Jairus? Verse 35, while, she, while he, speaking of Jesus, commending her faith, while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Now, let's back up and remind ourselves of what happened with Jairus to begin with. Verse 22 says, Jairus came and saw, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Well, she, Jairus heard something about Jesus, too. What did Jairus hear? Well, they, the only thing that we can say for certain is that Jairus heard that Jesus was healing people. He doesn't dictate what kind of, uh, what method or manner in which the healing power should work. This is different from Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 8 where the centurion comes to Jesus and his servant is at home sick of the palsy and Jesus says I'll come and, and heal him and the centurion says I'm not worthy for you to come to my house just speak the word only and she shall be healed for I'm a man under authority and I have soldiers that are under me and when I say go they go and when I say come they come and I understand that you have authority over sickness that's what that that uh, story about authority and his understanding authority is all about. He's identifying that he believes Jesus or he has recognized that Jesus through his healing ministry and through the reputation that he's gained from it, Jesus has to have authority over sickness and disease. So he says, speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Contrast that with Jairus. Jairus simply says, my daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her that she may be healed. And that she will live and not die. She's at the point of death. He knows that every moment is precious. I doubt very seriously if he's excited about the woman with the issue of blood taking so much time and taking Jesus away from what he was already in the process of doing, which is going to his house, Jairus' house. But notice what Jesus does when the report of the daughter dying comes to them. Again, verse 30, what is it, verse 35, verse 36. Oh, verse 35, while he yet spake, 
there came one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Be not afraid, only believe. Now what do we know about what Jesus has taught or will teach the disciples about faith? Well, we quoted Mark chapter 11, verse 22, I mean verse 23, just a moment ago. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart, that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. We know that faith is of the heart, and is identified by the spoken word. We know that the only, the only restriction, the only critical element that we have to guard against is guarding against doubt being in our heart. Now, if faith is of the heart, and you can tell, we see in, in the woman with the issue of blood, her faith was identified by what she said. So faith of the heart is identified by what you say. Well, then what's doubt of the heart identified by? What you say. So when Jesus says, be not afraid, only believe, he's telling him, don't say a word. Don't say a word. And we have no record for the rest of this story that Jairus says another word. Now, what does Jesus tell him, or why does Jesus tell him, don't be afraid? Be not afraid of what? Well, Jairus is counting on getting Jesus to his house in time to lay his hands on his daughter, Jairus' daughter, and heal her. I'm sure he has not planned in any way whatsoever that no matter what condition his daughter is in, dead or alive, wealth, uh, well or sick, as long as Jesus comes to my house, everything will be all right. He would have no reason to have that kind of faith because where would he hear the word to produce that faith? Again, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. He's put all the eggs in the basket of Jesus getting there before his daughter dies. He knows she's at the point of death. He tells Jesus he's at the point of death. And then Jesus spends so much time with this woman. For what reason? She's already got her healing. Why does he even stop to hear the story? Can you imagine if it was you? The things that you would be thinking I'm, I'm guessing that most of us, if not all of us, would be standing there next to Jesus, shuffling our feet, trying to pull Jesus by the arm to get away from this woman, or at least make the woman walk with us while we go to the house. Woman, don't you understand? You got what you wanted. I'm glad for that, but now get out of the way. It's our turn. Then he gets the news. Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the master any further? Jesus turns instantly and says, be not afraid, only believe. Interestingly enough, he doesn't say, okay, now we need to talk about this. Because before we were talking about healing from uh, sickness while she was still alive. Now we're talking about raising the, the dead. And that's a whole different ballgame. That's a whole different level of faith that's necessary. The reason Jesus tells him don't be afraid 
is because Jairus is thinking what all of us would be thinking in that same situation, and that is it's too late. It's too late. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Has Jairus' daughter dying changed the power of God in any way whatsoever? Then what's the fear? The fear is the power of God, whatever it might be, is not available to me anymore because my daughter is dead. Jesus said, don't be afraid, only believe. Notice again the relationship between fear and either faith or fear and doubt. See, folks, just as Ephesians chapter 6 tells us about the wiles of the devil, the road that the devil travels, the road the devil travels, the only road he can travel is deception. If he can't deceive you, he cannot defeat you. So how does he bring deception to pass or to bear in your life or my life or anybody's life? Through fear. Through fear. If deception is the road that the devil travels, fear is the car that he travels in. Well, we know the end of the story. After having made such a big deal out of, out of the faith and the, versus the fear part, Jesus goes to his house, puts everybody out, says the daughter is just sleeping, not, not dead. Everybody starts laughing at Jesus and uh, mocking him and so forth. So he clears out the room, puts everybody out, raises the daughter from the dead, delivers him back to his mother and father. It's almost as if the power of God in this situation becomes a side issue to the story. So the fear that Jairus was faced with, that it's too late, was unfounded. But he didn't have to make a confession to overcome the fear because he had already spoken words of faith. Folks, I learned something from Brother Hagin that, that staggered me when I first understood it. Brother Hagin said once, and he didn't say it very many times, in the, at least in the years that I knew him and had experience being around him. But he said this one time, we were talking about uh, how he ministered to somebody and after three days the devil, uh, he cast the devil out of somebody and after three days it came out. But he said this, he said, once the words of faith are spoken, I will never turn back. Once the word of faith is spoken, I will never turn back. Jesus is telling Jairus, when he says, don't be afraid, only believe, he's telling him, what you've said is enough. You don't have to say it again. And for goodness sakes, don't say anything against it. Be not afraid, only believe. Turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the traveling over of the devil. In other words, operate from knowledge so that you can avoid being deceived. Operate from knowledge so that you can conquer fear so that you be not deceived. Operate from knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of who God is, knowledge of what God has done, 
Knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. Knowledge of who you are. If you have a proper knowledge, an accurate knowledge of what God has done for us through the work of Jesus and therefore who we are in Christ, you can never be defeated. I didn't say you will never be defeated. I said you can be never defeated. It's up to you what you do with it. But a knowledge of who you are in Christ equips you with everything that you will ever need to overcome the devil. So it says that we need the armor of God that we may overcome the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Now, here's that hierarchy again of evil spirits. What is that there for? Well, the only thing that I can really attach importance to this knowledge is simply this. Principalities. The devil, the devil has only one way that he operates. Deception is the only road he travels, right? That's it. He travels the road to deception through fear. So that means principalities are going to operate by fear. That means powers are going to operate by fear. That means the rulers of the darkness of this world are going to operate by fear. That means spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places operate by fear. So that means, therefore, folks, if we conquer this hierarchy of the devil's operation, then that means we've conquered one fear after another. And if this is a complete list, and I can't imagine why the Holy Ghost would have told Paul to say it if it wasn't, but if this is a complete list of how the devil operates, then growing in faith is about conquering fear. That would have to be true, wouldn't it? So what does this look like? Well, folks, it looks to me like the difference between principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places, it looks to me like each one of those is a different level of credibility toward fear or credibility to fear. Let me give you an example. Principalities might be the equivalent of the devil whispering in your ear, everybody's going to get the coronavirus. Powers might be symbolized by your doctor telling you that everybody's going to get the coronavirus. The rulers of the darkness of this world would be the equivalent of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, they've added to it, telling everybody, telling the, the nation that everybody's going to get the coronavirus. And then spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places might be the equivalent of the World Health Organization saying everybody's going to get the coronavirus. Now, folks, it's a lie no matter where it comes from. But each one is a step higher because of the credibility that those different groups or individuals might hold in our lives.
But what knowledge do we need to overcome those fears? Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes we are healed. There's another one. No evil shall befall me, neither shall any plague come nigh my dwelling. Folks, we could stand here and quote healing scriptures till the sun came up and not exhaust what the Bible says about the work of God being done to make us free from sickness and disease. So then what is this about? Let's back up and take a big picture look at this. What is this about? It's about one thing. And that is, what are you going to yield to? Are you going to yield to the fear of what might be? Or are you going to yield to the truth of what has been? Are we going to yield to the fear of what could happen? And if you look back in your life, most of the things you were afraid that would happen never did happen. So are we going to be moved by the fear of what might happen? Or are we going to be firmly established in what has happened? And by that I mean Jesus has already paid the price for sickness and disease. Folks, if you think about it, that's what everything is about on this earth. Who holds the final authority in your life? What the devil might tell you? From any source, in the, any position on this hierarchy? Or what the knowledge of God reveals? That's why putting the word first in your life is so important. It's the only foundation that overcomes all the work of the devil. The only one. When God created man in his own image, placed him in the Garden of Eden, man's only source of knowledge was God. Now, folks, that was the, the condition that God said was very good. In other words, that's what paradise is supposed to be. That's what the kingdom of God looked like before sin came in. Uh, came into the play. It looked like man gaining his source of knowledge, having the only source of his knowledge being God and operating in freedom from sin, sickness, disease, and all the works of the devil. Well, God hadn't changed just because sin came into the earth. God's principles haven't changed just because sin overtook man. What does God still intend for his man? His people. He intends for us to get our source of knowledge from the Word of God first and foremost. Now, that doesn't mean other sources of knowledge are not good. They can be good. But anything that contradicts the Word produces a situation where you're going to have to decide who you're going to listen to. That's what the just living by faith comes down to comes down to living by God's word solely above anything and everything else. And if we do that, the knowledge of who we are in Christ, the knowledge of the truth will overcome anything and everything the devil can ever do or ever threaten to do or ever plan to do in your life. Growing in faith is conquering fear one by one. I'm reminded of the, the story of George Muller, English minister, who God directed to start an orphanage, the Bristol Orphanage, still going today. And this was well over, well, almost uh, 200 years ago now, I guess. 
when he first began. And he was responsible over his lifetime. He was responsible for the care of over 25,000 orphans. Now, this was before any newsletters or Internet or any way to publicize or advertise the work that you're doing, giving people a chance to give, any of that kind of stuff. No partner letters were able to be sent. And he said this. There were some miraculous things that, that took place to provide for these orphans. And he said this. He said, after feeding my faith, talking about feeding it on the word of God, after feeding my faith and exercising it over 50 years, I'm able to believe God today for $1 million where in the beginning I, I only believed for one. He said, I'm able to, because of the exercise, the feeding and the exercise of my faith, I'm able to believe God for a million dollars easier than I could believe for the one dollar before. Now, he didn't say that in dollars and cents, but it, I don't know what the equivalent of pounds and pence and all that kind of stuff was in English money. But his faith grew in the amount. Now, think about what that means. That means he came to the place where he realized God was big enough to provide a million dollars more or easier than he believed that God was able to provide for a dollar in the beginning. What does that mean? That means he conquered dollar faith with million dollar faith. I think that's why it's so important for us to be honest with ourselves about where we really are in our faith. Because faith is all about conquering fear. I look back at some of the situations in my life where I faced financial difficulty and financial trouble. And I remember one, one uh, thing early in the, the life of the church. We were facing a financial crisis. Dear Lord, it seemed like it was all the money in the world that we needed. I thought at the time that I, my head was on the block of the guillotine. And it's just waiting. The blade is just waiting to come down and chop my head off. Looking back at it now, I see that it wasn't a guillotine. It was a butter knife. <laughs> but I thought it was a guillotine at the time. What does that mean? Well, that's how our faith grows. Now I realize that what I thought was such a big deal back then wasn't such a big deal. How did I learn that? By God proving himself faithful in the little things and then proving himself faithful in bigger things. And then proving himself faithful in still bigger things. Now folks the Bible uses some all inclusive terms like all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to him that believes. It says with God all things are possible. So where is the issue? Where is the problem? Is the problem with God not having enough power? Or is the problem with us not recognizing the, the deceptive works of the devil? And Preparing ourselves, having done all to stand, making preparation to stand when evil attacks us. The fault is on our side, not his. But thank God he tells us how. Amen. Thank God he reveals to us that the knowledge of the truth of his word, the knowledge of who we are in Christ, will defeat the devil in every respect because there's only one road he can travel. That's the road of fear leading to deception. When we know that, then it, the responsibility becomes ours as to what we do about it. Amen. We can conquer fear on every level. Every level. Because God's the same no matter what it looks like to us.
Well, again, we can't pray, so let's talk to God again. <laughs> Father, we thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for your word. You sent your word and healed us. Thank you that you teach us through your word. You don't teach us through circumstance. You don't teach us through adversity. You don't teach us through tragedy. Your word is profitable for instruction. And only your word can reveal to us the magnitude of who you are and the greatness of what you've done for us through the, the work of your son Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the authority that's in the name, the name of Jesus, the name that's greater than any other name, the name that's greater than every other name. Thank you, Father, that we're surrounded by your love, we're surrounded by your favor, we're surrounded by your power. We're kept by the power of your word. Satan, we serve notice on you. We have figured you out. So we declare that no evil shall befall us. Neither shall any plague come near our dwelling. A thousand may fall on our right hand and ten thousand on our left. But it will not come near us. Thank you, Father, that we're free. Thank you, Father. We've been delivered in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. What are we doing? We're doing a song? You got it?